When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. History Hit and Assassin's Creed presents Assassins vs. Templars Real Histories of the Secret Orders Welcome to the inside of one of history's greatest stories. I'm Matt Lewis, and in this collaboration between Ubisoft and History Hit, we're taking you back to the very beginning. The story of Assassin's Creed is one of deadly rivalry between conflicting ideologies that asks whether peace is found through freedom or control. It begins with Assassins and Templars racing to gather the pieces of Eden in the fiery heat of the Near East amidst brutal religious upheaval. We're all Desmond Miles now, and we've found our animus, a team of the best historians working in their fields who'll unlock the memories of the past for us, lead us through their secrets, and introduce us to some of the real people who inspired the game. It's time to break into the vaults of two of history's most infamous organisations as we pit the Assassin's Creed against the Templar Order. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr Farhad Daftari, who is Director Emeritus and Governor of the Department of Academic Research and Publications at the Institute of Ismaili Studies in London. He's written over 200 books, publications and articles, including The Assassin Legends. And I'm delighted to have him here with us today. Can we start off by talking a little bit about the group that's in the game Assassin's Creed that's known as the Assassins? That's probably how we identify this group, particularly here in the West. But... Are they more properly known as Nizari Ishmaelis? And who were they? How did they come about? I think we need to really provide a proper historical background to situate this community. On the death of the Prophet Muhammad, the Muslim community was split into two main divisions, what later became known as the Sunnis and the Shia. The Shia believed by contrast to the Sunnis, that the Prophet himself had, in fact, designated in the final months of his life his son-in-law and first cousin Ali to succeed him. Obviously not as a Prophet, but as a leader of the nascent Muslim community. Whereas the Sunnis believed that the Prophet had left no such will and testament, and they therefore went about and selected a successor to the Prophet who became known as the first Caliph. The word Shia itself is an abbreviation of Shia to Ali or the party of Ali. The Shia themselves, in the course of time, split into various groups because as the descendants of Ali grew in number, the Shia could not agree on who was the rightful successor or spiritual leader to whom they referred as the imam and therefore disputes of succession led to 
subdivisions within the Shia. And eventually, two main Shi'i groups emerged, the so-called Twelvers, who are the majority today, and they are situated in Iran, Iraq, and Bahrain, and so on. And the second most important one, who have become known as the Ismailis. Now, the Ismailis themselves, they really started in the middle of the 8th century as a revolutionary movement because their overall objective was to install their, the imam acknowledged by them to a new caliphate. And that meant uprooting the Sunni Abbasid establishment. And it was to achieve that objective that they organized a very active mission or daba. And the religio-political message of this mission was spread by a network of da'is, or missionary. So by the middle of the ninth century, you had these guys active in almost every part of the Islamic world, from North Africa to Central Asia. Now, the success, the early success of the Ismaili Dawa soon culminated into the foundation of the Fatimid Caliphate. That was the first Shi'i Caliphate in rivalry with the Sunni Caliphate of the Abbasids. This caliphate was founded in the year 909 in North Africa, and by 973, they had transferred the seat of their state from North Africa to Egypt, where they founded the city of Cairo, which served as the new royal capital of the Fatimid state. Now, the Ismaili imams, or the imams recognized by the Ismailis, ruled as Fatimid caliphs over an expanding, flourishing major empire. In the year 1099, on the death of the 8th Fatimid Caliph, there was a schism, a split, because they could not agree on the rightful successor to him. The old, the powerful vizier put on the throne a younger son of the deceased Caliph by the name of Al-Mustali, who reigned as Fatimid Caliph, Whereas the Ismailis of the eastern lands, especially in Iran and Syria, they actually recognized the original heir designate of the deceased caliph, whose name was Nazar. So the two subdivisions of the Ismailis became known as Mustalis and Nazaris, named after the two sons of the deceased Fatimid Caliph al-Mustansir, who had claimed his, his heritage. Now, the cause of Nazar was upheld by the chief Dai in Iran, whose name was Hassan Sabah. Hassan Sabah had already established himself in the fortress of Alamut in northern Iran, that henceforth served as what became known as the Nazari Ismaili state. This state was of a particular kind. It was carved out in the very heart of the state of the Saljuk Turks, who were ardently Sunni, and they had this their own vast uh, state, which included all of you see, Iran. Now, Hassan was a revolutionary at the same time that he was an Ismaili Dai, but because he had supported the cause of Nazar, he severed his relations with Cairo and the Fatimid Caliphate. And in fact, he founded the independent Nazari Ismaili community, Dawa. 
and state. Now, he had a twofold aim. One was to spread Ismailism, now of the Nizari brand, throughout the Iranian world. And secondly, he had also a political objective of uprooting the Saljuks, who were strongly against the Shia. And it was in the service of these two objectives that Hassan successfully founded this state. And this state was comprised of a network of mountain fortresses, the chief one of which was, of course, Alamut. But they had these fortresses in four or five of different regions of Iran. And soon, uh, Hassan, by the early years of 12th century, began to send dyes or the propagandists to Syria to organize the community there, which they did actually with much success. And about half a century later, by 1140s or so, they also managed to seize a network of fortresses or castles uh, in central Syria. It was in Syria that the Nizari Ismailis came into contact with the Crusaders. I think it's fascinating to think of the Nizari Ismailis, the assassins, as being a, a state. I think we quite often think of them being almost a stateless people, but they effectively had their own state and structures and all of those kinds of things. So you mentioned that they, they come into contact with the Crusaders. How do the Nizari Ismailis interact with Christians and with other Muslim groups? Now, at the headquarters of the Nizari Ismailis, which served as the capital of the state, which was Alamut in Iran, and in the rest of the territories of Nizari Ismailis in Iran, there was no contact between them and the Crusaders because the Crusaders never went to Iran. Whatever contact there was limited to Syria. These contacts were of various natures. They were military, diplomatic, trade. But the Crusaders did not know who these people were. Now, these people were actually referred to by their Muslim co-religionists as Hashishi or Hashishiin or Hashishia, based on the sort of derived from the word, you say, Hashish. Now, this was indeed at the time, especially 12th and 13th centuries, in Syria and Egypt, this was a term of abuse, which meant people of low religious morality, of the people of lax uh, you know, social outcasts, and so on. This is how they were addressed by other, you see, Muslims, because they were really hostile towards one another from early on, because the Ismailis always planned to uproot the Sunni rule of the Sunni caliphs and so on. So these two communities never really got along. It was for that sense that the Muslims, in the sources that we have from the period, Ismailis are referred to as Hashishia. But nowhere they have the assassin legends that we find in Occidental sources, or nowhere they say they were called Hashishi because they actually used hashish or had any regular habit of using hashish. Because for the Muslims, the term was understood. And this is why we do not find any of the so-called assassin legends in the Muslim sources. It's in 
the Crusader sources and the European observers of the Crusaders that we have these legends. The legends apparently evolved in stages. At each stage, new embellishments were added to the tales. And the reason why these tales were created in the first place was that the Ismailis resorted to assassination as a political tool. Why? Because they were a very small community. They could not mobilize large UC armies, and they were fighting large armies both in Iran and in Syria. And they, especially in Syria, they were surrounded by hostile Muslim rulers, the Ayyubis, the Zangis, and so on and so forth. And then the Crusaders came on the scene as another hostile factor because the two sides were fighting one another for quite some time over the possession of the fortresses in central Syria. In fact, that's mainly how the Crusaders came into contact with the Nizari Ismailis in Syria. Now, because they could not mobilize large armies, they resorted to targeted assassination of key military and political figures who threatened the existence of the Ismailis in specific communities. Now, it's not that they just killed for the sake of killing or the murder at random. They were highly targeted because they had no other way of dealing with their enemies. But it so happens that at the time, any assassination of any major consequence was assigned to the Ismailis. The actual missions undertaken by the Ismailis were uh, done so by the so-called Yusufedais, the devotees, those who were prepared to uh, sacrifice their own lives. And this attracted the attention of the Crusaders as well. They were fascinated by the fact that these people they were so selfless and so devoted that they would carry out these missions. Now, the assassin legends appeared for the specific reason of satisfying the crusaders to provide logical explanations for the behavior that seemed otherwise irrational to the crusaders. And this is why these legends, almost all of them, revolved around the recruitment and training of these fedais. And they developed in stages and found their culmination in the synthesis popularized in Marco Polo's uh, travelogue, in which uh, Marco Polo claims that the mischievous chief of these people, known as the Old Man of the Mountain, and that itself was the, the translation of the Arabic term. Sheikh meant both an old man and also the chief, but the Crusader sources really translated Sheikh uh, into its secondary meaning, into old man, and because he did reside in these uh, mountainous high fortresses, became known as the Old Man of the Mountain. So Marco Polo says that this old man of mountain had created the sacred garden of paradise at his fortress into which he led these would-be fedais under the influence of hashish or some other intoxicating potion. And then when they came to, they found themselves in paradise and they could partake of all the pleasures promised them 
in the Quran that they would find in paradise, like the Huris and, you know, the damsels and so on. And then when the time was ripe, he would give them the portion again, put them to sleep, take them out of the garden, and then send them on this mission. And this explained why they were so devoted, because he would tell them that if you return alive from their mission, you will go back to this garden, and if you don't, in the afterlife, you go to this garden promised you in the world. Now, the term hashishi or hashishia became transposed into various uh, Latin-based and European languages as assassini, assassini, hasisini, and so on. And so eventually it entered European languages as the word assassin. And at the time, it did not have the meaning in which sense it is used today in reference to a professional the murderer. It was just the name of this mysterious, obscure community. But because of the assassination missions connected to this community, the word later on became a noun in European languages, meaning a professional a killer or just a murderer. You do not find any of these assassin legends in the contemporary Muslim sources, especially the Sunni ones, even the anti-Ismaili Sunni polemical text. You do not find any of uh, these tales or stories. And they, these were tales rooted in the imaginative ignorance of the Crusaders and their Western beliefs that could not understand Shi immartyrology, which we know very well today, for instance, in the case of Iran-Iraq war. Of recent time, you saw these waves of young men walking over mines and so on, because they wanted to become shaheeds, martyrs, to the promised uh, paradise in heaven. So the Muslims could understand this behavior, therefore they did not to explain it. Whereas the Westerners, they needed explanation for their own satisfaction, and hence the genesis of the so-called assassin legend. You mentioned that the Nizaris were not popular amongst other Muslim groups particularly. The Crusaders struggled to understand them. In the game, we have Altair, the main character, is given a list of 10 people to assassinate, and that's a mix of Muslims and Christians. Is that a fair representation of the way the assassins worked? Did, were they able to work against both Muslims and Christians at various times? They could have. But since these, the actual missions carried out by the Ismailis were highly secret, we are in no position to know which of the assassinations was actually done by them. And because at the time, almost every group or faction did resort to assassinations. The Crusaders themselves used assassinations. The Sunni rulers of the region themselves used assassinations. The Saljuks, who were the primary enemies of the Ismailis, they too, to deal with their own internal factional fightings, resorted to assassination. But uh, if they did assassinate to the Crusader figures, I think they would have been very few because they did not really perceive of them as the main threat. The main threat to them were the Sunni Saljuk, the Muslims, who were fighting them on a prolonged basis. And it sounds like the Nizaris were keen to use assassination as a way to magnify their power. So you say they were fighting large armies 
It had really two purposes. One was, of course, to remove key enemies in key localities. Secondly, was to intimidate the enemies. So they either did this or did not attempt to refute if they were not behind attempts. For instance, we have uh, a number of stories portraying, you see, Fedais putting knives or daggers by the bedside of various judges and so on, but not killing them, just to warn them. Yeah, it's a bit like the godfather horse's head in the bed kind exactly. of thing. Yeah. And in the game, so the primary mode of assassination is normally with a, a hidden dagger, and we see Altair kind of diving off buildings very dramatically and assassinating people with this hidden dagger. Is there a, a standard way in which the Nizaris operated? Or were, it sounds like they had a much broader range of things, tactics that they would use. The actual missions carried out by the Nizaris were of various kinds, depending on the individuals involved, because they obviously had, you see, bodyguards and so on. But uh, to some extent, they tried to commit these acts in public places from which the perpetrators would not you know, survive. I mean, you know, again, to publicize the effect. The total number of such assassinations that can really be attributed to the daggers of the Nizari Fedais are much, much less than uh, we are led to believe. And in fact, three Persian historians who had access to the Nizari chronicles of the Alamut period which were kept at the famous library in the fortress of Alamut and elsewhere, they do have a list of the victims of these missions. And this tactic really started in the time of Hassan Sabah himself, the founder of this community and movement who died in 1124. And he reigned for some 30 odd years. And during that entire period, the names of the people who were removed by the Nizari Fedais uh, are less than 30. So less than one per year, I mean, for a 30-odd you know, period. So it's not perhaps as a widely used a tactic as we think it is. Exactly. It was used in a very you see, targeted and highly selective uh, manner. The key individuals who were perceived as enemies who posed serious threats to the survival of the Nizari community in specific regions. And you mentioned, I just wanted to come back a little bit to the, the idea of the old man of the mountain. Um, in the game, so Altair's mentor is thought to be modelled on Rashid ad-Din, who's one of the leaders, one of the old men of the mountain. He was the most famous of the Syrian leaders. And he's the original old man of the mountain of the Crusader sources. And during the period that he was ruling the Nizari clan, how important was he in the, in the larger picture of the Crusades? Well, he was a very clever man, a highly accomplished administrator, because he was really interested in maintaining the independence and the stability of his community which was actually surrounded uh, by numerous hostile forces, as I said, the Ayubis, the Zangis, and the Crusaders. Therefore, very cleverly, he would enter into shifting network 
of alliances. He would ally himself with one of these against you see others and then when the circumstances changed he would change his alliances so he was very pragmatic and flexible man in terms of you know adopting suitable policies that responded to the circumstances of the time so he wasn't necessarily bound by any religious ideology no, no, he was all. really focused on the well, preservation of the nizari group exactly and that allowed him to move between Christian exactly. and Muslim allies and enemies. Exactly. Fascinating. And I guess we have to acknowledge that in the game, the rivalry between the Templars and the Assassins is continued into the modern era. It continues today. The Templars are a sort of multinational corporation and the Assassins are still working around them. What do we know about what happens to the Nizari group? Could they still exist? Yes, of course they do. <laughs> they very much do. Very much do. The Nizari Ismailis, who were in both Iran, Syria, and then later on, especially in Central Asia, and then much later in India, in the year 1256, the Nizari Ismaili state of Iran was uprooted by the Mongols, but the Ismailis did not disappear. They went underground, and many of them actually migrated from Iran to Afghanistan and India, where Nizari Ismaili communities already existed. And the line of their imams also continued in the progeny of the last Lord of Alamut, who himself was killed by the Mongols. By the middle of the 15th century, the imams emerged from their hiding into a more you see, public state in the village of Anjudan. And then they revived the Dawa activities for the first time after the fall of Alamut. And they initiated the so-called Anjudan revival in Nizari Ismailism, which became particularly successful in Central Asia and you see India, where a large community of Nizari Ismailis appeared, locally known as the Khojas. The Khojas, who hail from India, but are to be found also in various African countries and, you know, in the West, they're all you see, Nizari uh, Ismailis. They still exist in Syria and in Iran, in small communities, but the bulk of the Nizari Ismailis of today are situated in Central Asia, especially in Tajikistan and Afghanistan and Pakistan, and also India, from where they migrated to East Africa, from where, in turn, from the early 1970s, they emigrated to Western countries, especially to UK, France, and Portugal in Europe, and to USA and Canada. The line of their imams has also continued uninterruptedly. And uh, since the beginning of the 19th century, the imams of the Nizari Ismailis became internationally known as the Aga Khans. So the present Aga Khan, the fourth one, who is the 49th, the 49th hereditary imam of the Nizari Ismailis, is very much alive and he's the spiritual leader of the Nizari Ismaili community who 
are should number to more than 10 million and they are scattered over some 30 countries of uh, the Middle East, Asia, Africa, Europe and North America. How do you feel about the reputation of Nizari Ismailis? It sounds to me like we tend to call them the assassins and think they were a very small group that did a very specific thing for a very short time and that we're probably doing a huge disservice to a very important faith group by doing that. I couldn't agree more with you. The Nizari Ismailis were a Shia Muslim communities and at times they did adopt the policies by force not by choice because they because their very survival was at stake as i said they could not use mobilize large armies and they were constantly threatened by much more militarily powerful muslim sources they did not invent the policy of assassination which did exist among the muslims from early on various early shi communities and as well as the Khawarij and the Sunnis themselves, they resorted to that policy. That was a practical see, tactic uh, which they adopted. Because the bulk of the assassinations of the time were attributed to them, unfortunately, the whole business of assassination became in a very gross and exaggerated manner attached to the name of this community, which really was not the case at all. There are Shia Muslim communities, and at various periods of their history, they made highly important contributions to Islamic thought and culture, especially during the Fatimid period of their history, as well as you know the Alamut period. They patronized uh, learning, scientific activities, art, and you see artists. And in fact, when the Mongol invasions started in the 1220s, they gave refuge to waves of Muslim and non-Muslim Christian as, as well as Jewish uh, scholars who were running away from the Mongols and gave them safe refuge in the fortresses where they partook of the patronage of learning and also their fantastic you see, libraries. So all of that is really, I would call, to use the modern term, they received bad press, really. They needed a good spin doctor. It sounds like, though, there's elements of their reputation that make them the perfect focus for a game like Assassin's Creed, but that there's actually so much more to their story, which is fascinating in itself. And thank you so much for sharing that with us, Farhad. It's been absolutely fascinating. In fact... It's really as a result of a modern progress in Ismaili studies that dates back to the 40s, that gradually modern scholars and the world at large began to learn much more accurately about the history and the teachings of these people. You see, by contrast to a bunch of myths and legends and misrepresentations which had been circulating for a thousand years. Now, of course, facts will eventually replace fiction, but when fictions are more attractive than facts, sometimes it's not uh, difficult to, even when you have managed to deconstruct the fiction, but they refuse to disappear because they have appealed to 
to the imaginations of generations. Hashish, daggers, and huris are much more interesting than actual fact that what a Shi'i Muslim community did. You're fighting against human nature's desire for a really good story, but I think you've been at the forefront of this work for decades and exactly, it definitely yeah. is changing yeah. the focus and the story. So thank you so much for sharing all of that My with us. My pleasure. Farhad. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Next time on Assassins versus Templars, it's the mortal enemies of the Assassins, the Knights Templar, who take our focus, as we're joined by Professor Helen Nicholson of Cardiff University. Make sure you're following the Echoes of History podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you don't miss that episode. And also, you can listen to the whole of the series there too. This series is a special collaboration between Ubisoft and History Hit, with post-production undertaken by Paradiso Media. Yeah.